Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Take two. That's right. (laughs) No one knows that it's take two. Now they do. Now they do. We're transparent around here. It's true. We let people know how things really are. Yes. We literally started this, and then a minute and a half later, everything crashed. So... That doesn't affect anybody that anybody's going to, anybody that anything is going, anything that anybody <laughs> is going to hear. Darn it. <laughs> Darn it. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. Um, that doesn't affect anything that anybody is going to hear, but uh, it's just fun behind the scenes for a half a second. Yeah. <laughs> um, behind the scenes of this very polished, very well-oiled machine. Yes. Yes. Top top-notch professionality i mean the production value Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's just infrastructure right (laughs) it's energy (laughs) uh well we need to ask the question that everybody's everybody's wondering all the time everybody needs to know they always need to know i have been asked this question in public in fact it's amazing We've made it, guys. We've made it. There is a catchphrase (laughs) that people will whisper to me as I'm walking by them we're going to make this one's a doozy koozies and put what are you drinking on it. That's right. So what are you drinking? I, you know what? I'm keeping it simple. I'm staying true to myself and I'm having a Dr. Pepper. Nice. What about you? Very good. I am drinking a beer from the Nebraska Brewing Company. Mm-hmm. It is the Brunette Nut Brown Ale. Ugh, that, is- I mean... That name is terrible. It is so tasty. Brunette nut brown ale. <laughs> when you say it like that, yes, that sounds <laughs> That's disgusting. That's how I hear it in my head. <laughs> Drink indie. It is, it is, uh, should I read the description for everybody? Sure. Why not? The, the version, their version of the classic English style brown ale exudes rich aromatics from the beautifully blended malts and brings to mind nut like and toasted bread aspects. <laughs> In Not this like. excellent, <laughs> in this excellent seasonal <laughs> ale, embrace the flavor, and I will because this is actually one of my very favorite drinks. That's I, my new favorite yeah. adjective. <laughs> Not like <laughs> incredible. incredible. Used to be smarmy. <laughs> that, smarmy. That Someone is, called me smarmy once. Yes. Yes. I had to look that one up a few times over the course <laughs> of the years because I kept forgetting what it meant. I wore that like a badge of honor, mm-hmm. honestly, <laughs> because I wasn't being smarmy. Yeah. So I like ironically embraced it. See, what we're doing right now is we are just raising the intelligence level of everybody. Because You're anybody that doesn't know what that means is immediately going to go look up. You're what welcome, everyone. Smarmy me. Expand your vocabulary today yeah. and every day. Now you have two new adjectives: nut like and smarmy. There you go. Those are. <laughs> See. <laughs> See if you can <laughs> incorporate that into everyday conversation today. Yep. Oh my goodness. <sighs> well, my love, do you have a feel-good fact for us today? I do. Okay, what is it? I do. So, baby elephants suck on their trunks for comfort, similar to how human babies use a oh. pacifier or suck their thumbs. <laughs> Look it up on YouTube. It's so cute. Is it cute to watch? Oh, it's so cute. <laughs> Baby elephants have the cutest little faces and they have those big eyes and they just nurse on their little trunks. Wow. And they're still 600 pounds. I know. <laughs> they're so cute. <laughs> I love them. 
I that love the cute. elephants. So yeah, look that up. It's a good one. That was a nice one. All right. Well, now that you've given us a nice floating feeling of the cuteness of, of baby elephants, mm-hmm. why don't you go ahead and bring us down today with the story that you've got for us? Okay. So I feel like this is one of those stories that a lot of people have heard. It's not necessarily like a household name, like a household story, but I feel like the main character in today's story has been baffling people for many, many years. So today I'm going to tell you about the disappearance and reappearance of Bobby Dunbar and the bizarre unfoldings thereafter. Hmm. Hold on tight, Kev. This one's a doozy. All right, so I'm going to come right out of the gate by saying that this story is just like super heartbreaking. It's confusing and it's sad and it's scary. And the women in today's story are so relatable that I can put myself into both of their shoes super easily. I don't like to share stories of tragedy surrounding children, but this is a really gripping story. And I feel like if you've never heard of it, that you should. Hmm. So let's start by talking about Bobby Dunbar. Okay. Robert Clarence Dunbar, or Bobby for short, was born on May 23rd, 1908, to his parents Lessie and Percy Dunbar in Opelousas, Louisiana. He also had a brother named Alonzo. So on August 23rd, 1912, Bobby was camping with his family at Swayze Lake in the St. Landry Parish, Louisiana. They actually stayed in a cabin owned by Lessie's uncle and the Dunbars, along with all kinds of extended family, and like they'd all get together and mm-hmm. spend time here during the summer. This particular summer had been an exceptionally good one for fishing. Hmm. News articles read things like, quote, crawfish are vamoosing. Fishing <laughs> is getting good. End quote. Vamoosing. There you go. There's another vocab word. Wow. So people flocked to bodies of water to reel in whatever they could. The reason that this summer was so good for fishing was because during that spring, they'd seen a ton of flood level precipitation Hmm. and floodwaters that had been in the, I'm going to probably butcher this, Actifalaya River had finally busted through the banks and into little reservoirs and lakes and ponds throughout the area. Hmm. By August, those floodwaters receded back to normal levels. And so fish that had been brought in by the floodwaters were getting trapped in smaller bodies of water in like record numbers. Okay, yeah. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Okay. So because of the floodwaters, the camping site had been submerged to some degree. So the Dunbars and some extended family were there not only to fish, but to also fix any damages and to restore the cabin to its former glory. Hmm. Along with Lessie, Percy, and their sons were Percy's cousin Wallace and his wife and two sons, Lessie's sister Rowena Whitlett, a family friend named Paul Mitzi, and a servant girl who I couldn't find a name for, unfortunately. Hmm. And before you ask, the Dunbars weren't loaded rich, but they were definitely doing all right for themselves. And from what I could find, they didn't flaunt any level of wealth to the hmm. community. Okay. I feel like that's important. Other than having a servant in the year 1908. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So Percy was a pretty successful realtor. Um, Percy and Leslie were young when they got married in 1907. And within a year, little Bobby was born. Leslie stayed home with the kids and took care of the home. And Percy went out and worked. Hmm. I didn't say this, but Alonzo was born two years after Bobby. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. So they had a fun dynamic and they were solid doting parents and partners, despite being a little overprotective of the kids from Mm. time to time. Sure. Which is like, also, I get it. Right. I understand being a little overprotective. So as the women were hard at work scrubbing mud off of every surface of the interior of the cabin, the men worked outdoors to clear out the overgrown brush that had taken over the cabin and paths in the trees nearby. Mm -hmm. As far as the fishing was going for the Dunbars, they had to walk a ways to get to a good spot because their usual fishing spot had been washed out. Oh, okay. Leaving behind a five foot wide bank of mud. And it was flat out dangerous to try and get close to that spot for the time being. The kids Mm. were not happy about this. Right. (laughs) They understood the safety issues, but they really just wanted to go fishing. This was the thing that they were all looking forward to about being at the cabin. So let's talk about the geography for a second. Okay. I'm going to once again butcher that name, but here I go. Roughly 100 years before this story took place, the land in the Actifalea Basin was pretty much impossible for people to access. Hmm. It was a dense, dark swamp with waters that were difficult and dangerous to attempt to navigate. 
geographer and cartographer William Darby had this to say in a study he'd published in 1816, quote, to have an idea of the dead silence, the awful dreary aspect of this region, it is necessary to visit the spot, end quote. Hmm. So like, I can't even describe to you in words how dark and like scary, silent and dense this place is. Yeah. So it's like, you just got to be there, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, good luck guys. So over the course of the next hundred years, levees were built all across the basin to keep the Mississippi river from flooding towns, allowing people to come in and cut away dangerous trees and twisting branches, which also allowed waters to drop to a depth that was much easier to use to travel mm. and like for business also. So super low swampland would be drained and would eventually be a useful agricultural spot. By the time the Civil War rolled around in the 1860s, the spot was shockingly well-developed, but levees and plantations would be destroyed during the war. Hmm. Once the war ended in 1866, repairs on the levees began, but the area was pretty far gone in a lot of parts. Okay. Farms were abandoned, and in their place were more fallen and twisting limbs, swamps with perfect coverage for large alligators and other predators as well. Anyone looking to clean up and settle the region surely had their work cut out for them. Progress on that front was slow, but sure, and eventually it was inhabitable and useful to the point that fishing became a booming economic venture. Roads would be built in the area that would connect it to larger places such as New Orleans, and train tracks would also be built. Eventually, the place was well-managed enough for people to come with their families on fishing vacations or day trips, but it was definitely better and safer if you or someone you knew knew the area right, well. Right. So Percy had actually grown up in the area, and so he'd fished and hunted in this area for his entire life. So his family was in good hands. Hmm. He knew how to navigate it safely. He knew what things to look for that could potentially be dangerous, all that kind of stuff. So wow. okay, yeah. Yeah. So there basically this town became uh, a tourist town for for fishing somewhat yeah uh, and so much so that you really only got the good fishing if you knew <laughs> if a you guy. knew somebody <laughs> yeah. right right yeah interesting sure. okay yeah yeah so in the late morning hours just as the boys and men were all heading out to go fishing a message was delivered to percy who was actually also a notary so the sender of the message had an urgent need to have a deed transfer notarized as quickly as possible So Percy agreed to head back to his home to notarize the document, and then he'd be back to take the kids fishing later. Hmm. Okay. Bobby was not happy about this. And man, if that's not relatable. Right. (laughs) We have kids (laughs) who are big feelers, and they will also hold you to a promise. Yes. If you promise to take them fishing, then you better take them fishing. (laughs) That, That is for sure going to need to happen. Immediately. Immediately. And if you don't, there will be lots of tears. Yes. So when Bobby learned that his dad was going to be leaving for a few hours, thus delaying the exciting fishing trip, Mm -hmm. and upon discovering that he couldn't go home with his dad for a few hours because the trip home was work-related, he threw a huge fit. Mm. He clutched and tugged at his dad as he walked towards the horse, screaming all the while. At some point during this fit, the little rubber band strap on Bobby's hat snapped. His dad took the hat and pushed it back down on his head, and he got down to Bobby's eye level. He smiled at him and reassured him, everything's going to be fine. (laughs) I'm going to come back. We're going to go fishing. Don't worry about it. So then he mounted his horse and he headed off. He had the messenger boy bring Bobby back to the camp to make sure that he made it back safely. As the day wore on, more guests came to help in the cleanup at the camp. John Ogue, a wealthy state politician, Dr. Lawrence Daly, and Daly's 12-year-old son came. So whenever characters like John Ogue and Dr. Daly were around, Lessie felt the pressure to sort of present herself at her best. Mm, Okay. Like a little performative art. Sure. Um, She'd behave in a much more formal way than she normally would when she was just hanging around with her own relatives, you know. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, I, I do get that. So Lessie and Rowena took on the role of being good hostesses, preparing for a fish fry meal while also looking after baby Alonzo, who was only two at the time. Hmm. Okay. The older kids had sort of buddied up and they were planning on going fishing by themselves for a few hours. And then there was little Bobby who was kind of in the middle. So he was kind of by himself. Yeah. He wasn't interested in getting on the floor and playing with the baby. And the big kids didn't really want him to go. Right. 
So classic, classic big kid move saying, yeah. oh, no, you're too little. Yeah, such a big kid move. Yeah. So there was a sort of buzz about who was going where and when. And so Paul, the family friend, offered to take all of the boys down to the lake so they could shoot at the big garfish in the water. <laughs> Paul was very close with the Dunbars and with Bobby in particular. He, Bobby loved Paul. So Paul would let the Dunbars come over and he would take Bobby and the other kids down to go ride horses. And so he was basically the coolest guy ever in their books, you know. So he also had a nickname for Bobby. He called him Heavy, (laughs) which he was the only one allowed to call Bobby Heavy. (laughs) I'm like, all right. That's funny. So Leslie was a little nervous about the kids being by the shore for a few reasons. One, she was worried about the sinking mud pit. Mm. It was basically like sticky or quicksand. And just a few feet into the lake, there was also a huge drop-off that had a depth of at least 15 feet. And that was before all of the floodwaters. It's like factoring that and it could be even deeper and there could be branches and things like that, Mm -hmm. you know, washed in. So with that stuff shifting, she was just nervous about it. So she made them all promise to not go to the shore in front of the cabin. So they spent some time shooting at the gar and fishing at a different spot that Paul felt was safe. The next chunk of time was a little bit of a blur to everyone. At some point, the group all made their way back to the camp. The last thing anyone remembers of Bobby was when Paul lifted little Alonzo onto his shoulders, almost tripping over Bobby. He said to him, get out of the way, heavy, or I'll run you over. To which Bobby replied, you can't do it. You ain't no bigger than me. Oh my gosh. So from everything I Classic. read in the book that I use for today's story, Bobby was like a little spitfire. Yeah. He had like big personality. He was super adventurous and he was fearless and he would also get into trouble for his antics from time to time, but he had a big heart. It sounds like Alonzo was much more chill and he was kind of like a go with the flow yeah. little baby. Yeah. So it's, it's funny how personalities come out. Right. You know, I think that's cute, but... In the chaos of lunch prep and getting tables set and drinks poured and kids rinsed off and all of that, everyone was a little preoccupied. It wasn't until everyone had sat down to enjoy lunch together that Lessie noticed something was off, but she couldn't quite put her finger on it. She scanned the faces at the table, and that's when the question smacked her hard in the face, where is Bobby? Oh, no. Everyone got up and immediately began searching for him. They checked inside and outside in the various clearings, down by the water, and just about everywhere else they could think of, yelling his name as loudly as they could and listening for a response that wouldn't come. Mm. I know. At some point, neighbors to the camp heard the commotion and began to aid in the search. Lessie got the idea that maybe Bobby had tried to head back towards the house in search of his father, so she sent three of the neighbors that direction just in case. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I see where this is kind of going and this is making me, yeah, okay. Sad. So when the men made it a short distance from the camp, they found Percy, but no Bobby. Percy obviously immediately understood the gravity of the situation. And so he raced back to camp as quickly as he could, helping everyone search high and low for little Bobby. Percy actually had a prosthetic leg made out of cork from a defect that he'd suffered at birth. But that didn't stop him from getting down on his hands and knees, searching the very mud itself for any sign of Bobby. A footprint, his little hat, anything. He was yelling Bobby's name for so long that he was beginning to lose his voice. Uh Around this time, Og and Dr. Daly came running out from a clearing, saying that they'd found some barefoot child's footprints. Lessie knew that Bobby loved to take off his sandals and run around camp barefoot. So she looked Hmm. around, found his sandals and ran toward where the footprints had been found. The prints were the same size as the shoe, much smaller than the foot size of all of the other children, and they were walking towards a dead end of like a T in the road that ended in railroad tracks. Mm. So she pretty much was like, these are Bobby's. He's the only one who would fit this size, you know? So the prints continued over the railroad tracks and dropped into an embankment of a sand pit on the other side of the train tracks. The prince continued, still up the embankment again, where it looked like there was a struggle or a fall of some kind. Maybe he fell back on the railroad tracks, and then they came to an abrupt stop. So he made like a little bit of like a loop. Mm -hmm. Down the embankment, up the other side, he kind of stumbled, came back around and went back up the embankment. 
Percy would later share in an interview that the footprints suddenly disappeared. They searched the immediate area for more footprints. They found some a ways down heading toward Opelousas in the opposite direction from the tracks. They were all baffled. If these were Bobby's footprints, where was he trying to go? Had he gotten lost? So they flagged down a train full of passengers and told them that a child was missing. When the train returned to town, the conductor informed railway superintendent Hay Flanders of the situation, who promptly sent a train full of 100 men ready and willing to help find Bobby. Yeah, so they were not messing around. Like, immediately they responded. So these guys had all hunted and fished in the area, and so they also knew it very well. Mm. They also brought in dogs. The search continued into the evening, and by nightfall, it had begun to rain, so all of the women were sent back to the camp. Poor Lessie was a mess. Where had her son gone? Mm -hmm. Fear swirled around her head as she lay in the dark camp. What if he drowned? What if he'd been attacked by an animal or You know, what if he was bitten by a venomous snake? Any terrible thing could have happened to him. Yeah. The search continued over the course of the next few days, but after they still hadn't found Bobby, the family decided to head home. It's unclear how they got to and from the camp, but my guess is that the train is the most likely scenario, unless they had multiple horses. I'm not sure. So the family had also recently bought a new house and had just started unpacking in the days leading up to their trip to Swayze Lake. The sheer emptiness of their home without Bobby was palpable. Mm. They were sick with fear and concern and sadness for their son. Within a short period of time, there were over 500 searchers who combed over wider and wider areas surrounding the lake and in nearby communities. Mm -hmm. The days to come would bring only more questions and more grief for the Dunbars. The men who were searching in the Swayze Lake area were very worried that he'd drowned, so they began sifting through the lake using long poles with hooks to try and navigate the water, searching for any clues that might lead them to Bobby. They all got this sinking feeling that maybe Bobby had been eaten by an alligator. Oh. That was unfortunately not unheard of in this area. Oh. Yeah. Small content warning. I'm going to be describing some violence against animals for a second, so if that's upsetting to you, skip forward a minute. So they began hunting alligators. Every time they'd catch one, they'd cut it open and examine the stomach contents, Mm -hmm. but there was no sign of Bobby. Yeah. One shady thing about this is that since alligator skin was and is super pricey, some of the men would skin the alligators that they'd killed and would sell the skin. Yeah. Which just like felt really weird to the people in the communities nearby. They were very put off by it. They're like, okay, so are you actually searching for this little boy? Right. Or or are you just just trying to make money? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was a thing. And so once they kind of got that sort of pushback and because of a recent food chain crisis caused by the overhunting of alligators by poachers, that activity did stop. Oh yeah. Or at least it stopped happening as frequently. So, I mean, it went from like, it was already a problem to like, this is a massive problem. Right now everybody's doing this mm-hmm. a lot and yeah. Yeah. Okay. And now we're like overpopulated with right all the animals that the alligators normally hunt, mm-hmm. you know? So after Bobby still hadn't been found, all kinds of rumors began to spread about what could have happened to him. The most popular idea being that maybe he had been kidnapped. But since it wouldn't be likely that money was a motive, unless they'd been mistaken for relatives of Percy that shared the same last name and were much more wealthy. Mm. There's really no known motive. Right. For them to benefit from that, they would have to say, we have him. Mm-hmm. And no one had at this point. Right. So. so once this theory gained traction, the field of investigation spread to more communities and larger cities as far as New Orleans. It was around this time that the media got wind of Bobby's story, and it was an instant sensation. Mm. Reporters were flooding the town and pounding on the Dunbar's door, begging for an interview. Eventually, on August 29th, six days after Bobby had gone missing, the family made a statement. They penned and released a letter to their friends and neighbors in Opelousas, who they referred to as the, quote, vast army of human beings, end quote. Mm. <laughs> in this letter, they thanked them for being so giving of their time and their finances and for sharing many kind words and sympathies towards them during the worst season of their lives. Oh, yeah. Though they weren't ready to give up on finding Bobby, the letter did have kind of like a sense of like 
finality almost mm-hmm. to it. They would say things like, quote, we are well aware that all has been done which human effort can accomplish. And it is a comfort to know that our country is filled with one of the kindest hearted people on the earth, end quote. Wow. So they would sentiments like that where it's like they haven't totally resigned to it, but they're like, we get it. Like we yeah. feel like everybody we're, we're tapping out on other fields yeah. to reach into, you know, other resources to reach into, you know? Yeah. So with this, the whole town's morale was boosted and recommitted for the cause so much so that the citizens of Opelousas had raised enough money for the Dunbars to be able to offer a $1,000 reward for Bobby's safe return, which translates to roughly $30,600 today. Wow. Yep. The condition obviously was that Bobby would be brought home alive and unharmed. Yeah, yeah. Of course. So the media attention, as well as the effective word of mouth sort of spreading of Bobby's story, made its way around very quickly. On August 30th, a phone call was made describing a woman who was exiting a train in Port Allen with a little boy. She sort of tugged at him and dragged him along with her um, when they boarded a boat and crossed the Mississippi toward Baton Rouge. Hmm, okay. So when someone tried to stop her boat, she didn't acknowledge them. So this raised enough red flags for this person to report what they'd seen to the sheriff. Yeah. A man by the name of Sheriff Swords. Ooh. Which sounds very cartoony. It does. So the little boy also matched the description being shared by the media. Four years old, blue romper, straw hat, fair skinned. Hmm. Upon hearing this, Percy joined Sheriff Swords. (laughs) That is a tongue twister. That is, is a tongue twister. Yeah. Sheriff Swords on a train headed for Baton Rouge. So this is where things get a little hairy. Sure. The idea that Bobby had been potentially spotted was a big deal to a lot of people. Yeah. But what seemed to have been a bigger deal was the description of the woman with the little boy. She was described as Italian, exiting a train with a boy not of her race. Hmm. So there is a bit of troubled history with Italian residents in the area. Okay. In the South, Italians were sort of latecomers in the immigration. And so when they began immigrating and taking up residence, for whatever strange reason, people became suspicious of them. And Louisiana was one of the worst places. Oh, no. The book I read described people in this time in Louisiana as being anti-Italian. Oof. As recently as 1981, mass lynchings of Italian citizens were taking place in New Orleans when a group of Sicilians were acquitted in the shooting death of a police superintendent. The fury grew wow. with the help of editorial pieces that only fueled the fire of the angry mob, and it ended with 11 Sicilian prisoners, including the men who'd been acquitted of the shootings, being lynched. Ooh. Horrifying. So that said... That was not the only instance of something like that happening to Italian immigrants and their descendants in the area. Wow. So all of that to say, the search continued for the woman and the boy. The trouble is that nobody was quite certain where the woman and child had gone or what direction they were even heading. Hmm. News articles were being blasted all around the country, some being more helpful than others. This also led to people calling in or sending letters in hopes of receiving the reward money. So this was obviously frustrating because it wasted a ton of time and resources. Right, right. So Percy continued searching with investigators in the New Orleans area over the course of the next few days, hitting every possible location along the river that they could think of, from bars to schools and so on, but to no avail. He'd keep in contact via letters with Lessie back home, updating her and encouraging her the best that he could. September came and went with no luck, and at this point, investigators across many cities were all getting tired. Hmm. So at one point, the sheriff in Baton Rouge made a desperate announcement that was like, I don't know if this was a good idea or not. Oh, no. He basically offered a reward for anyone who would bring Bobby Dunbar home safely to his family. He offered $5,000, no questions asked, in addition to the $1,000 reward. Wow. Which is a lot of money. We're talking somewhere around $189,000 today. Wow. Oh, my. Yeah. Yeah. Huge reward. So, unfortunately, this led to more dead ends. Letters were pouring in day and night, claiming that they'd seen Bobby. His family was getting tired. Whenever they would receive another letter from someone saying that they saw Bobby, the family would send a photo of Bobby and tell them to match the face of the child they saw with Bobby's. And to only write back if you're certain that these children look alike. Right. 
everyone from armchair detectives to psychics to voodoo practitioners would write in, swearing that they would be the one to lead Bobby Dunbar back to his family. And then plenty of obviously fake reports of sightings from people who were looking to cash in on some serious money. Right. They also received various threats, including ones saying things like, I have your son, but I'm keeping him forever. Whoa. And like they would also describe doing bad things to him. Oh, why? Why? What, what benefit does that give somebody? Literally none. It's Ugh. terrible. It's like the equivalent of like putting like like just uh, razors in kids Halloween candy. Yeah. Like, like what like, is wrong with you? Why would you do that? That's such a waste of everything. Yeah. It's stupid. Yeah. So obviously this was absolutely overwhelming for Lessie and Percy. This whole thing in and of itself would be overwhelming to anyone. And so it was around the time shortly after the $5,000 of the additional reward money was offered that the Dunbars changed direction. Hmm. They decided to reach out to the William Burns Detective Agency. So this agency was known nationwide, and William Burns himself had several adoring pieces written about him and his work in the years leading up to Percy reaching out. The New York Times called him, quote, perhaps the only detective of genius whom the country had produced, end quote. Oh, wow. Yes. So he was known for his aggressive and effective approach to solving seriously high profile crimes of all kinds. The detective in the southern region for the William Burns agency was a man by the name of Dan S. Lehan, and he had an equally impressive track record for solving crimes of all kinds as well. Hmm. So it was as... If the minute that Lehan took over the investigation, that the whole thing became more professional and organized. The physical description of Bobby, which included a burn scar on one of his toes, was handed out to the agency and media outlets hmm. to become more focused. Yeah, yeah. He's like, we got to update this description. Like, yeah. He really helped them zoom in on certain more helpful and like maybe more unique details mm-hmm. about Bobby. So the description of that woman who was believed to have been seen with Bobby was also updated. Percy was feeling, as the book I read called it, cautiously optimistic. Mm -hmm. It felt like things were at least moving forward for the first time in a while. There was a notorious case that had been going on around the same time as Bobby's was. Content warning here. I'm going to breeze over a case involving violence against a child that leads to murder. Whenever I talk about cases involving children, I do not want to be super graphic, but this case is relevant to this part of the story. So if you don't want to hear about this case, please skip forward a couple minutes. Yeah. It was the case of a missing seven-year-old boy from New York named Joey Joseph. He'd been missing for over a year and his body had just been discovered. But throughout the time that he was missing, the boy's father would receive letters from the kidnapper, taunting him with graphic descriptions of the torture he was inflicting on his little son until the body was discovered and a postcard with a detailed confession of Joey's murder, along with a dozen more murders of missing young boys from the area, was sent to police from this same man who'd become known as the postcard killer. Oh my gosh. He would later be determined to be a man by the name of J. Frank Hickey. And the article featuring the gruesome and devastating story of little Joey was published one page away from the Dunbar's search for Bobby. Mm. So like you get this article that's just awful. Yeah. Right next to we're looking for our little boy. Yeah. So the fear immediately became that Bobby could potentially be another one of this killer's victims. Right, right. Detectives followed up on this and zoomed in on Hickey to see if he was, in fact, connected to Bobby's case, but this ended up being a dead end. The Hmm. months following Bobby's initial disappearance from Swayze Lake were truly a daily internal tug of war for his family. On one hand, they wanted to hold on to hope that maybe, just maybe, Bobby was out there, And that if they did everything they possibly could, maybe they would find him. Yeah. And then on the other hand, the likelihood of him being alive and safe began to seem less and less plausible as the days, weeks, and months passed. Mm. It's like every single time the family would begin to accept that he was probably not coming home, the bittersweet tug on their hearts would start all over again when someone would share another Bobby sighting. Right. Just like gut-wrenching. Yeah. Gut-wrenching. Every time they'd receive word of another potential sighting or lead, though, it would always lead to another dead end. Right. You know, so I just, 
I do not envy that position. I, I feel like I can like put myself in their shoes enough to understand that I would be an absolute mess. Oh yeah. But I don't think that unless you've experienced that, you can fully fathom how terrible Hmm. the whole thing would be. Yeah. So Percy returned to work in January of 1913. It was a sad, lonely winter for the Dunbars without their oldest son, but I think it was hitting them that they just straight up weren't going to find him. Hmm. There would be sporadic reports of sightings of Bobby that continued to lead to nowhere. March rolled around, and the bank that was holding the reward money began giving it back to Opelousa citizens. Hmm. Morale was down. Yeah. People, though they still cared about this case getting solved and still obviously wanted Bobby to be found alive and well, were really all just losing hope. Until in that same month, there was another Bobby sighting. Hmm. So I mentioned that this story was national news. Yes. People all over the country knew Bobby's face and his story like the back of their hands at this point, which came in handy. Hmm. (laughs) So in southern Mississippi, a little boy matching Bobby's description was seen with an older man who was working in the area as a sort of like jack of all trades. Hmm. This man had a reputation for never staying in one place for too long but was known for taking whatever odd jobs he could to earn money wherever he was at. Sure. So this was sent in a telegram on April 6th, 1913, addressed from a woman by the name of Mrs. C.C. Connerly. There was something about this report that felt different. Hmm. Within a few days, another letter came in addressed from the ladies of Hub. The letter explained that when a group went to ask the name of the man, who at this point was only named as Walters, Uh, They questioned him about the little boy seen with him. He became evasive, saying that the child was this person's kid or that person's kid. His story always different with each question asked of him. Hmm. So these ladies who had questioned him also allegedly witnessed him striking the child. So a sort of makeshift posse was formed and police were notified and Walters was detained. The boy was examined by a doctor after this time as well. The ladies were very convinced that this child was Bobby Dunbar. So they sent the letter with all of these details and asked the family to send another photo with more descriptions of their son. So Lessie wrote the ladies back, including another detailed description of Bobby and two additional photos of him. So there was some back and forth between Lessie and the ladies of Hub, as well as phone calls from the sheriff of Hub made to Percy. It seemed like this was finally heading somewhere. Hmm. Within a short time, the ladies of Hub sent two photos of the child in question. And for the first time since the search had begun, the family was convinced that this could be Bobby. On April 18th, Percy was sent a telegram telling him to come down. They believed that Walters, who had recently been released for some unknown reason, and the little boy were on the verge of being located once again. And they thought he should come down to see the boy in person. Hmm. So for whatever reason, Walters was let out. Yeah, that's that seems odd and highly unwise. <laughs> yeah. And so they're like, okay, we have a general idea of where he is. He hasn't fled. We're zeroing in on him. Mm-hmm. Start heading this way because we think we'll have this boy back soon so you can come see if it's your son. Hmm. So Percy okay. told Lessie that he was going to be heading down. Okay. Okay. So I know I've gotten into this a little bit since the beginning of the story, but this whole ordeal had radically transformed Lessie, both physically and emotionally. The once jovial and glowing woman was shriveled up. She had dark circles under her eyes and her skin was barely hanging on to her two small wrists. She was skeletal in her appearance and any time a spark of hope would come and then disappear again, she'd deflate just Mm. a little bit more. Oh, man. Hope had been more like a weapon over the last eight months of Lessie's life. Yeah. So Percy had decided that he needed to go alone on this trip because it would be too much for Lessie if they got there and the child wasn't Bobby. Right. They had some extended family stay with Lessie and Alonzo during this time to kind of help her out. That's good. That's smart. Smart, for sure. So April 20th, 1913, Percy arrived in Mississippi from Louisiana. When he arrived at the train station, citizens, particularly ones who'd been in contact with him, were there with authorities to welcome him. They informed Percy that the man, now identified as William Walters, and the boy had been located in Foxworth, Mississippi, nearby, and within a short period of time, the man was arrested, and the boy was taken into police custody while he waited for Percy's arrival. Hmm. So they got into a hand car to get to the police station. 
So a hand car is a single car unit that moved along train tracks by pumping a series of levers and cranks, kind of like on the good place when Jason and Michael are sneaking into the bad place. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta, you yeah get the yeah. visual. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So when they arrived, Percy got off and approached the little boy who was an absolute mess. His hair was matted. His clothes were torn and discolored with caked on layers of mud that mm-hmm. had since dried. Mm-hmm. His cheeks were sunburnt and his little bare feet were covered in dried mud also. Oh my gosh. As he approached the little boy who was waiting inside of a car, he called out the boy's name, Bobby. The little boy looked at him and then greeted him by lifting his foot towards him. Percy was confused, but police mm. let him know that this little boy had been asked to show his foot so many times because of the description of Bobby that included the burn scar on the toe. Which oh. I don't know why, but something about that really got me. Yeah. Like he yeah. didn't say a word. He just lifted up his little foot. Yeah. It's like he. <sighs> yeah. There's something really heavy about that. That's, that is. I don't know. I, don't, I can't put my finger on it either. It's it's really personal and, and yeah. deep. Yeah. So certain that this was his lost son, Percy brought the boy in for a hug. The boy cried and fought in protest and reached for the officer who he'd spent the last day with that he felt a level of trust with. So Percy let him go to the officer, fresh heartbreak obvious on his face. He was taken back to the last time he'd seen his son, crying on an old dirt road, wishing desperately to join his dad for his day trip to work. This was rough for another reason. A crowd had gathered in the area in hopes of witnessing this like incredible father-son reunion. And the little boy seemed not only to not recognize Percy, but he seemed afraid of him. Oh, no. So doubts and questions floated through Percy's mind, but through much reassurance that this behavior made sense, considering that he'd been an abused child taken hostage by a stranger, of course he was scared and confused. Right, right. So they relocated to a different area. This gave Percy the chance to actually get a good look at the child. He looked for signature marks on the boy's body, from moles to scars and things like that. His stomach churned as he looked over the whip marks across the little boy's entire body. Hmm. Then he looked at the boy's hands, once chubby little kid hands that bore the telltale signs of being loved and cared for were now shriveled, dirty, and weathered. After he finished looking him over, Percy scooped up the now calm child and walked over to the officers and said, this was either his son or, quote, a twin likeness, the very image of my kid, end quote. So now there was a matter of questioning Walters. While that took place, the boy would stay with the officers who he trusted, safe and sound, while the adults sorted things out. Sure, sure. So Walters was questioned. He doubled down that this child was not Bobby Dunbar. He told authorities that this little boy was named Bruce Anderson. That's all that he initially gave them, so he was moved to be questioned elsewhere. Hmm. At the jail where he'd been taken, he was questioned all through the night. Walters remained uncooperative and began giving sarcastic responses until police got fed up and locked him in a cell. (laughs) They then were able to get Walters to talk, which, like, shady, but okay. So this is what Walters told them. This child is Bruce Anderson. Bruce's mother, a widow named Julia Anderson, gave Walters custody over a year ago in North Carolina. He said that they'd traveled along a route that he recounted in great detail and eventually led Walters and the boy to end up in Mississippi. Hmm. And that there were several witnesses who would attest to this. Wow. So police didn't buy the story. Yeah. Despite all the great detail, they didn't buy it. Um, And Walters also lawyered up at this time. Yeah. Everybody, it sounds like everybody's doing what they should do in this moment, which is good. Mostly. Yes. Not a fan of the throwing him in a cell, you know? Yeah. Right. 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 You know, a little bit. The due diligence though. Yeah. That's, that's good. Yeah. They're asked, they're at least like getting somewhere a little bit. Right. In the meantime, Percy had arranged for Leslie to come down and see the child. Of anyone in the entire world, she would know if this was Bobby or just a lookalike. Yeah. When she got there, Percy was very careful not to get her hopes up just in case. But he let her know that he loved her and that his hopes were high. She was apprehensive. After having her hopes let down so many times Mm. over the course of the last eight months, she was scared to let them up again. Yeah. So they were led into a house where the boy was asleep. Lessie poured over the boy's features, comparing every curve of his face with the face she'd spent eight months memorizing from photos. 
Initially, she wasn't sure if it was him, but within a day and after a ton of drama, Leslie confirmed that this was, in fact, her son. Oh. So they took him home with them. Really? My goodness. After getting back home, Leslie gave the boy a bath, taking mental notes of moles and scars and things that she'd committed to memory, and -hmm. she was totally convinced this was Bobby. Renewed and thrilled at their second chance with their son, the Dunbars immediately showered the boy with love and gifts, even getting him a pony. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is a far different lifestyle than the boy had become accustomed to. Right. He fit into the family like a glove. It was a happy ending. Or so they thought. Oh, my goodness. Within days, a woman named Julia Anderson showed up at the Dunbar's home, claiming that this was her son that she'd given custody of to a man named William Walters a year ago. She had to give up custody because she was the servant of Walter's brother who had passed away and she had no means for taking care of this child. Uh But he was her son. So the matter went to court. What? (sighs) Yes. Oh, Wait, so he he for sure was her son. He was this boy was not Bobby. Totally for sure. Oh, okay, we're getting there. I mean, we're getting there, but this lady said that I'm That's sorry. That's what she said. This is for this sure is my son. This is my son. This yeah. is not your son. Here's what happened. I lost custody of him um, to William Walters. Yes. I worked for Walters' brother and I also had his child. She had other children too. Uh-huh. That ended it ended Badly. Okay. Um, children had passed away and she'd lost custody of other children. Very okay. sad. Okay. So this one, she just, she could not take care of him, but this was supposed to be a temporary setup. Right. At some point she was supposed to get the little boy back, but this is my son, Bruce. That is not Bobby. I'm sorry, but that's not your son. That's mine. What? So it went to court. Okay. Yeah. So I've taken a lot of time talking about the details of Bobby's disappearance and reappearance. So I'm going to kind of breeze through this next part. Okay. So the judge essentially looked at the description of the child. They looked at physical markings on his body and ruled that this was in fact Bobby Dunbar and not Bruce Anderson. Julia was heartbroken and Mm. wanted to keep fighting to get her son back because she knew this was not Bobby Dunbar. But she didn't have the means to continue fighting for custody. She couldn't afford the legal fees. Yeah. Did this woman have her son essentially kidnapped by Walters only to have him given away to another family? (sighs) Many people wondered this and many were just happy to see a family reunited. So then there's the matter of dealing with Walters. With this being such a high profile story, the public was out for blood. Yes. Who kidnaps and beats a stranger's child? Yeah. Who could be so vile? So after a short trial that lasted about two weeks, he was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. He eventually was released, but maintained that he never kidnapped anybody and that the child in question was not Bobby Dunbar. And time did what time does, and it marched on. Hmm. So when Bobby turned 18 years old in 1932, he was back in public attention. The Lindbergh baby case was hot in the news, and since he was the nation's other most high-profile missing child cases in recent memory, they wanted to get his thoughts on the matter. So he said that he remembered nothing of his time at the lake or getting lost, but he did remember traveling with Walters. He also remembered another boy around his age with them for a short time. He said that the boy had fallen off of a wagon and tragically died in the accident. Oh, no. This was the first time Bobby had ever told anyone this story, which did raise some doubts. Mm -hmm. But the media went nuts with this story. The idea that maybe this boy who was raised as Bobby Dunbar maybe was Bruce Anderson and that maybe Walters had kidnapped both of the boys with Bobby passing away in a tragic accident. This could have been true, but it also could have been a carefully fabricated story to sort of give people peace about the whole situation surrounding, like, is this Bruce or Bobby? Sure. So, oh my God. A lot of people wonder if his family told him to say, like, to tell the story about the little boy on the wagon Uh so that people might be like, oh, he probably just kidnapped both. Right. And so, whether one way or the other, this kid is probably Bobby, you know? So there's a lot of speculation on that. Obviously, that's speculation. Nobody can prove that one way or the other. Right. So the rest of Bobby's life was very normal and uneventful. He got married and had four children and he worked in sales. (laughs) The Dunbars and their extended family lived life as though this was Bobby, while family members of Julia and Bruce Anderson remained convinced that Bruce had been stolen from them. 
These respective families passed on this story throughout generations, each defending their descendants' choices and believing that it was their family that was telling the truth about the child. One family member in particular remained exceptionally interested. This was Bobby Dunbar's granddaughter, Margaret Dunbar. So in 1999, Margaret was given a scrapbook from her father, Bob Dunbar Jr., full of newspaper clippings of the many documentations of her grandfather's disappearance and reappearance. Hmm. This became a sort of passion project for Margaret. Okay. She spent much of the next decade poring over whatever information she could find about her grandfather who had since passed away. At the same time, another woman named Linda Traver was conducting her own investigation. Her grandmother was Julia Anderson. And she'd grown up convinced that the Dunbars had kidnapped her grandfather. Wow, this is going to get real meta, isn't it? (laughs) You don't even know. Dude, as soon as the women learned about each other, they agreed that the truth was more important than their biases. So they teamed up to uncover the truth together. Wow. This was obviously a bit rocky at times. Sure. Since they both fully embraced their individual families' versions of events— But they worked through those things and continued on their mutual pursuit. As they scoured small town and big cities library catalogs and dug through document after document, they stumbled upon a letter that had been sent to the Opelousas courthouse at the time of the trial in 1913 from a person who called themselves the Christian woman. Hmm. In this letter, the woman defended Julia Anderson and William Walters saying, quote, Dear Sir, In view of human justice to Julia Anderson and mothers, I am prompted to write to you. I sincerely believe the Dunbars have Bruce Anderson and not their boy. If this was their child, why are they afraid for anyone to see or interview him privately? I would see nothing to fear, and this seems strange. The Dunbars claim that if this had been their own child and that he had been gone eight months, do you think his features would be so changed that they would not know him only by moles and scars? This is a farce. Mm. If the Dunbars do not know their child, who had only been gone eight months, by his features, why, they don't know him at all. Mm. End quote. So shockingly, it was Margaret who was the most moved and convinced by this letter. Yeah. It really got to her. Yeah. She'd heard the stories and just didn't think it was weird that both Percy and Lessie had a hard time identifying the boy, but managed only to identify him by marks and moles. Hmm. So, in 2003, Margaret sent a sample of her father's DNA to a laboratory to be tested. They had the sample compared with Alonzo Dunbar's DNA, Bobby's brother. Mm -hmm. After a short wait, the DNA results were in. Her grandfather was not Bobby Dunbar. Oh, my god! He was Bruce Anderson. Wow. (sighs) That's, like, really sad and... uh, there's a lot of mixed emotions happening in my yeah, in my heart right now. I know. Wow. The Dunbars were all blindsided and taken aback by this information. It felt as though their whole lives, their whole individual and collective existences were a lie. Yeah. So many of the Dunbars are furious, even to this day, with Margaret for not just leaving it alone. But I think that her quest for the truth was and is very noble and that she did the right thing by yeah. pursuing it. Yeah. This news did a lot in the way of building bridges between the Dunbars and the Andersons, though. But with that answer solidified, there comes the answer that many fear will never come. What actually happened to the real Bobby Dunbar? Mm. The most likely explanation is the most awful. He most likely fell into the alligator-infested swamp or got pulled into a mud pit. Yeah. That's really, honestly, the most likely scenario. Yeah. Which, like, it takes my breath away to even read that. Yeah. So the legacy of this story is a painful and heavy one. One mother's life flipped upside down by grief, willing to overlook the fact that the boy that people believed was her son didn't look much like him at all. It's likely that she knew all along that this boy wasn't her son, but fueled by her pain and by public support, she embraced the boy and allowed herself to believe that he was her son. Yeah. We also have another mother who, by sheer awful circumstance, had her son stolen from her and the inability to fight for his return. Yeah. So the book I read for this story, A Case for Solomon by Tal McThenia and Margaret Dunbar Cutright, goes into so much detail about this case. The investigation, the trials, the aftermath, and legacy, and I highly recommend it. Hmm. Please check our Instagram stories for 
that. So I did my best to summarize the story, but this book is absolutely loaded with insight and care for the true story and the history and culture surrounding it. And I think everyone should read it. Yeah. But that's what I have for you this week. Wow. I, yes, I feel very conflicted. (laughs) I know. There's, there's something to be said too about, um, the, I don't want to call it an adoption because it's not legally and technically that. Right. But there's something, there's a, a quality about um, um, the mother taking on her supposed son mm-hmm. and just saying, he's mine now, I'm going to take care of him. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's like a kind of a sweetness to that, but man, it's very conflicting. <laughs> well, I kind of said it right at the very beginning. I have put myself in both of these women's shoes very easily. Mm-hmm. You know, I can put myself into Lessie's shoes and be like, at that point, I think that it was literally just, all right, everybody's telling me that this is my son. And yeah. I'm like trying desperately to prove it. I'm going to find the mole. I'm going to find the exact one. You know, I'm going to find, I'm going to find the scar that I remember, you Mm. know, it was very desperate. And so she allowed herself to believe that it was her son, even though most people believe she actually knew that it wasn't sure, but it was like, this needs to have a happy ending. Honestly, she may have spontaneously combusted if she didn't take that route, but then to be told, not only is this not your son, but this is this person's son. Yeah. And to not be moved, especially because you're a mom who now knows what it feels like to lose a child and you're going to take that from another person. Yeah. It, that It's just so sad. And poor Julia. Yeah. I can put myself in her shoes too. I mean, we're not wealthy. <laughs> you know, right. if we, if we were in a, like a court situation like this, somebody yeah. took our kid, we'd have people who would help us out. But like, it's also a different time. We could right. do a GoFundMe. It's a whole different and world do like now a, than then. A Twitter blast right. about it and people would choose sides. It was just so different. Yeah. And so I feel like just by I said sheer awful circumstance and I stand by mm-hmm. that phrase. It's really unfair that she lost custody of him in the first place. Yeah. And it's really unfair that Walters left North Carolina. I guess yeah. I guess from what I understand he left North Carolina and he was not supposed to take the baby with him, the little boy with him. Yeah. It sounds like Walters really, he's the man at the, at the center of this whole thing. If he would have just done what he was supposed to do. This wouldn't have happened. Right. It would have been all, you know, it would have panned out still painful, but not this kind of painful. Well, and it sounds like literally all he was doing was using this boy to get more work so he could make more money. Right. And then beat him. Right, like, which is just disgusting. Just awful. I feel really awful for Julia. Yeah. I feel awful for Lessie. Like yeah. the whole situation is terrible. Yeah. But I feel like this is a really like it's one of those stories that I feel like everybody should know this mm-hmm. story. Well, and one one last thought to that. I think these two families could have had a completely irreparable relationship. I know. Had it gone the other, the other way. And now it seems like maybe, and I don't know, you have more insight to this than I do, obviously. Um, but it seems like maybe that could have been, been uh, healed a little bit through the truth coming out later. I feel like in some regards, it was a healing thing. And like, like there were some bridges built between some of the family members, but mm-hmm. like a lot of the Dunbar family at least at the time that the book was written, I was reading an interview that she was giving or, or it was just like a conversation with her and her co-author. I can't remember which one I'm thinking of, but there were family members at that time, at least that were mad Mm. and like, I'll never forgive you. You, you blew up our family. How could you basically? Yeah. Like you should have left it alone. You know, I don't know if that's still the case. Mm. It's possible that there's been healing since the time of the book being written, but I mean, at the end of the day, what could have easily happened is Julia was not in a good situation. Yeah. She was in a very heartbreaking situation in North Carolina. They could have had her move in. Yeah. They could have offered her work. They could have given her the opportunity 
to be in a safe place with her son and they could have all doted on the same little boy for right. his whole life. You know, like right. there are so many ways this could have gone differently. Yeah. And it's just very heartbreaking. It is really sad to see that and hear that. But it's such a compelling story. Yes. I So I have like a, a personal kind of tie to this as, as I'm thinking through this. Um, and I don't know if I should go into the whole story. But sure. like the, the short version is that my uh, great, great grandpa, maybe it's three greats even, um, he grew up in a family mm-hmm. that uh, apparently everyone except for him knew uh, that he wasn't actually part of the family, but was actually essentially adopted because he was the child of an affair oh. and was adopted in and and given the family name and everything. And uh, most of my family didn't know about that until like 10 or 15 years ago. Well, yeah. And you're other half didn't know about that until 13 seconds ago. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. And so it, it, wow. it, it's like a really crazy kind of story of, I can tell the whole thing another time, maybe, um, maybe that's a bonus content sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, it like plays out in this really interesting way where you, f- you, you think your legacy is this yeah. for so long. And, and in fact, so much of his past that generations have died yeah. With this last name. Right. And now we're finding out, oh, well, they actually should have had this last name instead. Wow. And, and yeah, trying to track down the original mm-hmm. uh, parent and all. It's it's really fascinating, really interesting. But it's also like, like, I remember hearing that for the first time and having kind of this kind of sense of uncertainty. Almost like defensiveness a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can understand the reaction to be like, how dare you go look at, go look at, look for truth yeah. while we were comfortable with this. Mm-hmm. And, well, and also, the truth is often uncomfortable. It's true. And, and also um, that explained in, in, in my family's scenario and the way that it kind of worked out with older generations. For me personally, it doesn't affect me in my day to day life, but some other people it kind of did. Sure. Um, and it made them, uh, have to face some stuff. Mm. Um, but it also made them go, Oh, that explains this and that, you know? So, wow. Yeah. I did not know that story. I thought I had told you before, but maybe no, not. No, you I, didn't. Apparently not. <laughs> Must've slipped your mind. <laughs> I guess not. Crazy. Well, yeah. I, it does both of those stories really, I feel like highlight the potency of what we pass down generationally. Mm-hmm. It really highlights how powerful, because the Andersons were convinced that the Dunbars were villains and the um, Dunbars were convinced that this was Bobby. Yeah. And they were like unspoken enemies yeah. really yeah. for a long time. And it's because both sides really believed their families. Yeah. They really believed the stories that they were told as being 100% the truth. Mm-hmm. And it is just so interesting how powerful yeah. A generational passing down of stories and history really is. Absolutely. Oh, for sure. So, yeah, that's a tough one. It is. Well, for our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. Uh, I'm just going to call this one more unusual than anything else. And definitely, actually, I'm going I'm to change it. I'd say unsavory because there's so much to it that's mm-hmm. just heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, Agreed. And there's definitely the tail end of that turns more, you know, into into the unusual side of things. But yeah, it's definitely. I mean, anytime that there's a child who goes I know. missing I know. or experiences any sort of pain um, and death, like it's just a shame. Well, and, and I've just got to say, I really, really struggle with hearing stories, reading stories, even like a mm-hmm. fictional, like an episode of Criminal Minds involving children. Yeah. Really are hard for me, but sometimes it's like, all right, girl, you got to suck it up because this is an important story that people should hear. Yeah. Like get over yourself. I know it's hard. I know it sucks to talk about, but like, this is important. People need to know that this happened, you know? So, well, um, did you vote? Are you, did you have a vote on, on, on say unusual, unsettling or unsavory? I'm going to say unsavory too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I would say unsavory because it's just so heartbreaking. Yeah. 
Well, if you have an opinion, dear listener, you can let us know on Instagram um, on the post for this episode in the comments. Feel free to drop a line and tell us what you thought of the episode and uh, how you would rate uh, this story. Um, you can find us on social media at this one is a doozy on Instagram and TikTok, and on Facebook you can find us as uh, this one is this one's a doozy podcast. And uh, you can also email us this one's a doozy at gmail.com. This one is a doozy. You're right. That's what it is. This one is a doozy at gmail.com. <laughs> and you can send us your recommendations for stories. Um, and you can uh, share with us your personal stories. We just had a personal uh, stories, listener stories episode mm-hmm. recently. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got more on the way down the road a little ways. Um, but we want to keep on collecting those. So we can share those as they come. And, uh, also make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast on your favorite listening platform, whether you're a Spotify, Apple music, Deezer, Stitcher, Stitcher, good pods. Any of those. go on good pods and listen. Oh, yeah. we would love it if you would go on good pods and listen because they do a really cool thing where they like, they show you how many listens you have on the platform and they show you, um, you get ranked. Oh yeah. And there was a point where like. When we were pumping out two episodes a week for spooky season, mm-hmm. where we were like number 65 in the indie true crime section. And I was like, oh, yeah. oh, what? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So yeah, go to good pods. I kind of like see us climb the ranks. That's, That's kind of fun. Yeah. Well, yeah. So whatever your favorite listening platform yeah. is, Pick go your and subscribe there and please do us a huge favor. Leave a five star review. If you hit the five stars and you say, this is my favorite podcast because I want to know what everyone's drinking every week or anything to that effect. Uh, please do that because that helps other fans of true crime um, uh, podcasts to, to find this one. Huge help to us. And uh, it's a great way to share the podcast around with other people who uh, should listen. And thank you so much to everyone who has already done that. Yes. Uh, we've read all of the reviews and we've seen the rankings and all that stuff, all the ratings, I mean, and it's just so, so sweet. So we really do appreciate that. It really yes. means a lot. Yes. Well, with that, we will see you next week for another doozy. Mm. Bye. Bye.